The following contains descriptions of physical violence, sexual violence, and graphic descriptions of autopsies. Hey listeners, welcome to episode 64 of TGIC Podcast. I'm Jillian. And I'm Izzy. And today we're going to be covering the Kitty Cabin Murders. Um, I don't really have anything else to say. <laughs> I don't know, sometimes I feel like I have things to say. I don't, yeah, I don't feel like I have anything to say for this one. I don't know. It's a really interesting case. Yeah. Today's a really nice day, in case anyone was curious. It's beautiful outside today. Today's like the first, like, kiss of spring. Yeah, and Izzy and I just left early because we didn't want to go to a pep rally, so... yeah. And you know what? We're actually good kids because we didn't skip. No, we literally signed ourselves out. We self-checked out. And, like, most of the people just, you know, like, skipped Left. that. But not us. Because, you know, we're good. Yeah. Students. And you know what? Now we get to start recording early. Yeah. Yay. Yay. Okay. Actually, I am, like, kind of excited about this case. because it's, it's really it's interesting. Really yeah. Okay. Okay. I'm going to get started with some background. The Ketty Cabin case is an unsolved quadruple homicide case from 1981. The victims include three members of the Sharp family and a friend named Dana Wingate. So, Glenna Susan Sharp, who was called Sue, she was born on March 29, 1945 in Massachusetts. She married James Sharp, and the two lived in Connecticut. They had five kids together. John was 15 at the time of the murder. Then there was Sheila, who was 14. Tina was 12. Uh, Rick was 10. And Greg was 5. However, um, after they lived together in Massachusetts, or Connecticut, sorry, I read the wrong state. Um, after, <laughs> after they lived together in Connecticut in 1979, Sue decided to divorce James because he was, like, abusive and shitty. And so they moved to Northern California. And then they first lived in a small trailer that was in Quincy, California, but Sue was really eager to move her family into a more permanent living situation, so she began taking typewriter classes, and she actually got a part-time job at Quincy Elks Lodge. With the money that they had made, they were able to move into Cabin 28 at the Ketty Cabin Resort. So the Ketty Cabin Resort was at the center of Ketty, California, which was previously a very bustling resort town, and it had kind of fallen into financial setback before... It had an upward trend in the late 70s. So the resort had become a popular spot for low-income housing, and the cabins were often rented out long-term, but for only like $170 per month. Cabin 28 had recently become available after the county sheriff had moved out, and then the Sharp had moved. The Sharps had moved in prior, about like a year before the murders happened. Yeah. Uh, so I'm going to move on to timeline. So April 11th of 1981, at about 11.30 a.m., Sue, Sheila, and Greg drove from their friend's house, who were the Meeks family, to pick up Rick at baseball tryouts at a field in Quincy, California. On the drive, they saw John and his friend Dana hitchhiking, and they drove them back to Ketty. Also, John and Dana are going to be up to some, like, they're, like, in and out of this whole story. It might seem confusing, but they're, like, hitchhiking around. Tomfoolery. Tomfoolery. Um, so at about 3.30 p.m., John and Dana hitchhiked back to Quincy, so they went home, and then they went back to Quincy, where they supposedly had a plan to visit some friends. I can't imagine this could have been very far, the amount of times they hitchhiked no. back and forth. it had to be, like, 15 minutes. Like, yeah. it couldn't be long. So later in the evening, Tina was over at the Seabolt family's house watching TV while Sue was at home with Rick, Greg, their friend Justin, and Sheila. And at about 8 p.m., Sheila left to sleep over at the Seabolt's family's house. And when she got there, she told Tina that her mom said she needed to be home by 10. 
And it's also noted that Sheila had never really slept over at the Seabolt's house before and that her mom had not wanted her to go over there in the first place. Okay, I find that so weird. And I th- it I'll is really weird. Because, I mean, like, spoiler alert, obviously they're going to get murdered later, right? And, I mean, like, I, it's not like a, everybody knows that. But, like, here's my thing. Like, why, if she's never slept over there before, don't you find it weird that she's sleeping over there now? I do think it's kind of weird. And also, if Tina was the one that was over there watching TV, I don't know anything for sure, but isn't it kind of, like, if Tina was the one that was over there, it seems like more like she was more friends with the, the kids at the yeah. Seagull's house anyway. So why the fuck is Sheila sleeping over and telling her sister to go home? I have no idea. Doesn't that sound weird? It's weird. Okay. That, that's bothered me a lot. Yeah. That Okay. That is really weird, actually. Um, so witnesses said that around 9.30 or 10, they had actually seen John and Dana trying to get a ride back to Ketty near the corner of Crescent Street and Lawrence Street in Quincy, California, near the Gold Pan Motel. And this was after they had attended a party with friends and their whereabouts are kind of unknown after this last sighting. All we know is that at some point in the night, they got back to the cabin. So these guys were kind of like hitchhiking all around. They went to a party, they went and saw their friends. Yeah. Yeah, Teenage tomfoolery. Exactly. So April 12th, 1981, this is the morning after that last day. At about 7 a.m., Sheila returned to the house and was shocked to see the dead bodies of Sue, John, and Dana in the living room. The scene was absolutely horrific, and instantly Sheila decided to check in the background in the back for like for her other siblings. So all of the bodies were bound with medical tape and electrical cords, and it was just like a really gruesome and bloody scene. So after looking around the house, she discovered that Tina was not there, and Rick, Greg, and Justin, who were the youngest kids in the house, were actually found unharmed in a bedroom asleep, which is like kind of crazy. So Sheila then went back to the Seawolds house and told them what was going on, and Jamie Siebold then came and took the boys out of the house. And this is, like, totally a potential contamination of evidence because he, like, took him out through the window. And I understand why he did this because, like, obviously young boys, you don't want them seeing that if they mm-hmm. don't need to. But still, it's it should be noted that it was... And just anybody going in the house is going to be potential contamination. Yeah. Obviously, it's kind of unavoidable, but now it's, like, the con- crime scene's been contaminated. Yeah. So, the murders were very violent and vicious, bloody knives and a hammer were found, and the blood spatter indicated that the murders happened in the living room. John was the nearest to the front door, and he was on the floor face up, and his throat was slit. Dana was next to him, face down on the floor, and his head was bashed in with a blunt object and rested onto a pillow. And it was later determined that John and Dana both had blunt force trauma to the head caused by hammers. And their legs were bound with electrical wire, which connected the two of them together. Oh. Which just, oh, so, like, visceral. Like, I'm, like, reading all this, and I think this is the one case where I'm reading all the details, and it's, like, I don't know. Like, I feel like I can imagine it, and I don't want to. Mm Mm-hmm. Sue was found naked from the waist down and partially covered with a blanket, she was gagged with her own underwear and a bandana, which was taped onto her face. She was stabbed in the chest and horizontally down her throat like her son. She also had an imprint on her head from the end of a rifle. Dana was also manually strangled. The autopsies later determined that Sue and John died from the knife wounds and blunt force trauma, and Dana died by asphyxiation. 
Tina was still missing from the house and she was considered a missing person and many searches followed in the surrounding area. So onto the investigation. Deputy Hank Clement was the first officer on the scene and along with declaring Tina a missing person and beginning a search for her, they also put up a bulletin in surrounding hospitals to be on the lookout for anybody coming in with like knife injuries. So this is because the attack was like so vicious and violent that it could be assumed that one or more of the killers was harmed in the attack. The sheriff at the time of the murders, Doug Thomas and his def- deputy, what is else? Lieutenant, Lieutenant. Don <laughs> It's not you writing it down and you're not even sure what it means. <laughs> Don Stoy. We're not initially able to discern an apparent motive. Um, Sheriff Thomas also called the Sacramento Department of Justice, who then sent in two agents from the organized crime unit and not the homicide unit, which is really that weird. That is really weird. And I don't know why they would do that, but yeah. Ha- was this later linked to, like, mafia stuff? I feel like I didn't see too much stuff. No, I don't think it was. But isn't that just, like, it's just really weird. Like, yeah. I don't know why they would do that in the first, like, Go with like, things. I feel like more obviously is it a homicide than organized crime. Organized crime is who you call in, like, later. Yeah. If you can, like, like, decide that it was, like, related. Homicide is definitely the first step. Yeah. I don't know. Um, police asked Nate. And also, even if they didn't have the resources to get the homicide unit, like, you would make up the resources for a triple yeah. homicide and a missing person. Yeah. Also, like, isn't this, like, a small town in Northern California? Exactly. What else? What other things are the homicide unit doing? That, no, like, literally. This like, has got to be one of the biggest so murders, like, doing? ever there. Yeah, I don't know. So, police asked neighbors if they had heard or saw anything, and Sheila and the Seabolt family heard no commotion throughout the night, which is weird. And then people living in Cabin 16 heard muffled, scre- muffled screams at about 1.15 a.m., but they assumed that it was just, like, a TV playing in someone else's cabin. But, like... Well, here's the thing. It's only weird that the Seabolts didn't hear anything if other people heard stuff. Yeah. You know? Yeah. But also, like, they could be heavy sleepers. You never know. Um, additionally, and also, the people in the house didn't even wake up. Yeah, that's so true, So it's, too. like, how loud could it have been? Mm-hmm. So, apparently, the boys in the house had not woken up. Throughout the night, even though their family members were violently murdered in the other room, which is... They're little boys. They're little boys, and it's just like, what if they woke up and they heard something and they were just like, oh, whatever, it's probably like my older brother was like... Yeah, like, they don't... They don't around. Like, like, they're never... Their first thought, if they hear noise in the is middle of the night, is not going to be, oh, there's a triple homicide happening in my house. Yeah. So it's just like, I get it. And also, what if they, like... I don't know, I'm sure that there are times throughout the night where I wake up, what if it was just, like, so drawing that they didn't remember yeah. it or something. I don't know. Um, interestingly, Ricky and Greg's friend Justin Smart did later say that he did see Sue with two men in the house that night. Both men had glasses. One had a mustache and long hair, and the other was clean-shaven with short hair. And also, I'm going to talk about this a little bit more later, but like, he also said that potentially one of the men had a hammer. Okay, but couldn't the, this be like a memory of suggestion? Yeah. Like, after the fact, like, he's going to know that there was a hammer. Like, it was, like, one of the biggest things talked about. And, like, if, you know, you get interviewed by police enough, like, asking, did you wake up and in the middle of the night and see anything? Like, that's what you're going to kind of come up with. So it could yeah. totally be, like, one of those, like, what Situations. do they call that? Like, a flashbulb memory? Yeah. Like, it's just, like, potentially falsified memory. Yeah. So the state of the house. The house had no signs of forced entry past an unidentified fingerprint, which was found on the front. And Tina's jacket and shoes were missing, as was the toolbox. The telephone cord was cut and the drapes were closed. And also the blood splatter evidence was like kind of telling and it was really weird in my opinion. So 
The blood at the scene was not simply confined to the floor or the wounds of the victims. There was also blood splattered on the wallpaper, ceiling, and furniture, probably because it was so gruesome and there was, like, knife and hammer movement. Mm-hmm. Um, some blood was found in one of the bedrooms in the house, and the bottoms of Sue's bare feet were covered in blood, indicating that at some point in the attack she had stepped in blood. And there was also blood on the soles of one of the boys' feet, which indicates the same conclusion. And one of the boys' feet, like the little boys? Um, like one of the ones Dana or Dana's not a boy. Dana's a boy. Dana's not a boy. Dana's a girl's name. But Dana's a boy. I'll pause the episode right now. Okay, so we just looked it up. Whoops. Dana's a boy. And okay, I will say it's very hard to discern because we had to just scour the internet. For any like pronoun usage on Dana, yeah, there were no there were no pronouns, so I I thought that was no, it is not Jillian's fault. I'm sorry, it was like, it was seriously like you could not tell because it was always like Dana was always referred to as like Johnny's friend, Mubby, yeah, no biggie, <laughs> no, that's okay. This is better than that one time where we spent like a whole episode calling oh somebody by the so wrong bad. name. And the thing was like it was during the election, like the presidential election, we just found out Biden won. So, like, we were not about to re-record that episode. No. Anyways. Yeah. So, there was blood also on the bottom of either Dana or Johnny's shoes. Um, there was also blood on both bedroom doors and the handrails on the back of the camp- cabin, which is weird, but also it's, like, which I thought was weird at first, and then I realized, like, of course, there's probably blood on the doors from people running around the house and yeah. like, touching the doors. Like, I'm not, they, like, they, this is clearly a very bloody crime scene. Yeah. So, even, let's jump ahead a few years into the future of the investigation. Tina's remains were found on April 22nd of 1984. A bottle collector found part of a skull and part of a jaw at Camp 18 in Butt County? It's Butt County. About 100 miles away from Ketty. A call was made anonymously identifying the remains as Tina, but it was left out in the case file, weirdly enough. And in June of 1984, a forensic pathologist confirmed that the remains did in fact belong to Tina. Detectives also discovered a blue nylon jacket, a blanket, a pair of Levi Strauss jeans with a missing back pocket, and an empty medical tape dispenser near the body, which may or may not be connected to the case. Interesting. So she... Is taken from the house where her whole, basically a majority of her family was just murdered, and she was taken a hundred miles away. Mm-hmm. That's Weird. crazy. That is really crazy. Okay, so on to suspects and theories. I'm going to start with the first one, which is the human sacrifice theory. Honestly, a lot of these are kind of just like easily dismissible theories that were just kind of proposed by the neighbors around because they wanted to like stir shit up, I guess. Yeah, and it was also like the 80s. Like, they were probably just bored. There was nothing better to do. Um, Okay, so the human sacrifice theory basically just started because the neighbors wanted to talk and there was a rumor going around. The case was like really violent, which kind of made people start to think that it could have been a human sacrifice. But police dismissed the claim, and there's just not a lot to, like, 
it doesn't make sense in the context of the crime that it would be human sacrifice. Like, there was no other, like, like don't human sacrifices usually have, like, there's, like, books or, like, like yeah, symbols? Um, yeah, or, like, something like, like, it's neater than this. Like, this is just, like, pure passion in this. Yeah, there, and there was, like, no nothing, like, indicating that there was, like, a ritualistic thing. Mm-hmm. Um, another theory was the drug trafficking theory. So this was another rumor started by neighbors, but police dismissed it because there was no drugs and there was no drug paraphernalia in the home. But there's also this um, acquaintance of the family, which um, acquaintance could be loose, used very loosely. I'm not really sure. Yeah. Uh, her name was Carla McCullen, or McMullen, and she told detectives that Dana Wingate had recently stolen an unknown amount of LSD from local drug dealers. But there's, like, no proof to support that. So it's yeah. probably not necessarily very relevant. Even if it was true or not, it's probably not relevant because the police dismissed it. Mm-hmm. Okay, the final theory that I'm going to talk about is the serial killer connection theory. So with any case like this, it can kind of be assumed that it could have been a serial killer. And it was also like a time where there was a lot of serial killers. Like weren't the 80s and 70s? Yeah, the 80s were really bad. Because I was thinking about the 80s and like how there were latchkey kids and stuff. And I feel like that was just a time when a lot of people were unsupervised. Yeah. Right? But also just, like, serial killers were really prolific during the yeah. 80s more so. And, like, I think there was a lot going around in California, too, because there was all those ones that used to travel around and shit. Yeah, like Richard Ramirez and... Yeah, there was all those serial killers just going around. So I think it was, like, easy to connect this, especially because of how violent it was. And it's also, I think it's always easier to, like, pin it on somebody that you don't know, like, a serial mm-hmm. killer, than, like, somebody that, like, potentially you do know, which is, like, the more common who commits crimes in, near you, you know? Yeah. Um, however, we're kind of talking about it. We don't know if necessarily this was, like, the work of a serial killer, just because it was so passionate, which mm-hmm. kind of, like, indicates that, like, that somebody had some personal vendetta. Yeah. And then, also, like, not all the people in the house were killed. And, like, if you were a serial killer, you're just there to kill, so, like... Yeah, like, you're there to wipe everyone out. Yeah, so, like, why would you not kill, like, the little kids, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, I don't... Are there a lot of serial killers that spare little kids? I don't think so. Like, that seems kind of whack. I don't know. Yeah. Um... Yeah, and I just feel like why it, it just doesn't make sense for a serial killer. Yeah. I feel like they're usually very succinct and they're like, oh, this is the type of person I want to target. This is when, this is how I want to do it. And I feel like this is just very, like, willy-nilly. Yeah. Also, I feel like a serial killer would low-key be better. Yeah. Better. Like, like this was like a messy crime. Yeah, yeah they, they would be more practiced. Yeah, they'd be better at covering shit Yeah. Like, I feel like... This is, it's really, it's really freaking messy. It's just really messy. I don't know. I feel like serial killers are cleaner. Yeah, they are. And I don't know, then the, also, like, the kidnapping of the girl and, like, taking her away. Like, it's, Doesn't like. Doesn't make sense. It's almost like it was, like, someone acting, like, irrationally, not a practice killer. Yeah, exactly. So, I'm going to get onto the the big daddy-o suspect. The meaty suspect. <laughs> meaty suspect. This is Martin Smart. So, Smart was a really early suspect in the case and was Justin Smart's father, who was one of the boys spending the night in the house the day of the murders. So, wasn't he one of the little ones who was... Yeah. Yeah, so he was not killed. Martin and his wife, Marilyn, knew Sue and became close friends with her because they all took the same typewriting classes. And later on in their friendship, Marilyn actually, like, came to Sue and just said that, like, was able to confess how Martin was physically abusive towards her. And this is probably because Sue was also a victim of domestic violence. And because of this, Sue advised Marilyn to leave her husband because it would just be better for her in the long run. Mm-hmm. 
And a lot of people speculate that Martin might not have been, um, like, might have been driven to kill Sue because he believed that she was responsible for ending his marriage. Mm -hmm. And also, John Bo, Bobody. That's a fun name. Bobody. That is a fun name. Bo Bobody. Bo Bobody. Bo Bobody. (laughs) (laughs) Was a friend of Martin, and he had actually been living with a smart household for multiple months. Um, Bo suffered from PTSD, and he was a veteran, and had supposed ties back to a mob in Chicago. Interesting. Really interesting. And also, he apparently had a crush on Sue, and at some point in time, and apparently Sue rejected multiple times, which is just, I mean, yeah. Anyways, the reason that I gave you context on Bo is because him and Martin were together on the night of the murders. So they had actually gone to a bar together around originally 10 p.m. that night. But later on in the investigation, Bo actually said that he had actually been there closer to midnight, which is a really big difference, specifically because the murders probably happened like later on in the night, like 12, 1, 2, 3. Mm-hmm. So that's a big difference. And, and, and also, why would you lie about that? Or why would you like... I mean, maybe he like misremembered, you know, you got to give him the benefit of the doubt. True. Um, and also this one, this part was just kind of thrown in there when I was doing research, but in a strange twist of events, it was later revealed that potentially Martin and Sue had been having an affair together, together. Oh shit. Um, but I don't really know. I saw this in one source and I don't really know if I trust Martin all that much, but I don't know what type of investigations went into this, Mm -hmm. but I'm hoping that's not true. Because if it is, I feel like that's kind of messed up. Yeah, that is really fucked up. Um, Even more disturbing is that in the early days of the investigation, Martin had actually told the police that a claw hammer was missing from his garage. Why would he tell them that? I have no idea. And this actually came into light before it was public knowledge that a hammer had, in fact, been used in the killings. Why Why would he openly be like, I'm missing a hammer, if he killed them with a hammer? Why would you tell the police that you were missing a hammer at all? I don't know. Like, like it's so if you can't dumb. find a hammer in your house, do you call up the police? No, and it's just like, dude, like, I mean, I get it that sometimes, like, killers get a thrill about, like, police kind of getting on their chase, but also, early investigation, before it was released to the public, that's just dumb. That's dumb. That's dumb. You are not smart. Also, they literally found the hammer that, like, was his exact description in 2016 in, like, a nearby pond or lake. Oh, and it was, like, placed there. They said it was, like, placed there intentionally for them to find. So, interesting. And uh, um, going back to when Justin said that he had seen two men, um, Justin had actually, who is, um, God, who is Martin Smart's stepson, he went under hypnosis, and apparently Justin claimed that he remembered parts of the murder and that he had seen two men fighting with Sue. And this is also when he said that, like, he saw the hammer. Hmm. So, interesting. I don't know how much you can trust hypnotism, but... It's also hypnosis. It's also hypnosis. Hypnosis is, like, really unreliable, right? Yeah. So, I don't know. Uh, wrapping this up, Martin Smart actually moved to Reno, Nevada after the murders and the implosion of his marriage. And in Reno, he began seeing a counselor. And apparently, in 1981... Um, the counselor came forward and said that Martin had confessed to them and that he had killed Sue and Tina. Hmm. That sounds about right. Which does sound about right, but also, like, 
I feel like I trust this counselor because don't they have like a thing where they can't say counselors can only come forward like they they can only break patient it's uh, like doctor con- confidentiality if there's a threat to somebody else's life or a threat to their own life. Okay, so this makes sense. Um, and they stated that he said his motive for was revenge for Sue breaking up his marriage, and apparently he still maintained that he had no part in the murder of the two boys. It could have been Which, Bo. It, yeah, it could have been That's Bo. why you brought him up, right? Yeah. So, like, what if Bo did that and he took the two girls? I mean, I just feel like if you're confessing to murders, like, you might as well confess to them all. Yeah. So I kind of believe him that he'd only kill two, you know? I do, too. And also, it makes sense with the two men and the two hammers and yeah. the knives and also how they were all kind of killed a little bit differently. Mm-hmm. So I think that makes sense. But even with all of this, the DOJ, which is the... Department of Justice. Department of Justice dismissed his claim and did not actually investigate him any further. So, I don't... This this is where we're at. Yeah, this is where we're at. I feel like it's that dude. I definitely feel like it. I feel like that makes sense. But, you know, I can't actually say that or else I, like, might get sued, I guess. So... Yeah. I... And also, he can't defend himself. He passed away in... Oh, he's dead? Yeah. Oh, well, then I think it was him. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, (laughs) thanks for the clarification. I think it was potentially him, yeah. Wink, wink. The most, the most evidence points towards him. The dead guy. The dead guy. All right. But yeah. Yeah. This was the Keddy Cabin murder case. Make sure to review us wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Instagram at tgic.podcast. Bye. Bye.